Hi folks, it's Kean here. This is White Atlantic Weird, the Irish Fortean show that's critical but not cynical. I'm here at the Cabin in the Woods, located somewhere in the sort of sunny southeast of Ireland. Uh, I've got some books in front of me, some old arcane tomes, and my beer for this episode. This is um, perhaps not too original. I've certainly done this before, but I'm enjoying a stag rua, or red deer, from the company Nine White Deer out of Balavorna in West Cork. So definitely mentioned them before on the show, but um, they're a good company and it's a nice beer. Let's have a look here and see what it says. Stag Rua is a beer with big malt flavours and it's our impression of a perfect Irish red ale. Now, the concept of Irish red ales is <laughs> controversial and convoluted. I'll just say that it's quite delicious. Anyway, in front of me, amongst other books, is a silly pulpy novel from the early 80s from 1983 in fact called Lammas Night and it's pretty close to Lammas Night actually that this episode is being recorded that of course is um, the last night of July and it is a date uh, a feast day sometimes associated with neo-paganism sometimes associated with witchcraft in silly occult novels like this one the novel is by Catherine Kurtz it has an amazing cover with a Nazi swastika of your <laughs> a map of Europe shaped like a swasti- Nazi swastika and a dagger sticking out of it and then a spooky black room behind it with a circle of weird occult candles so I was hoping for um, nothing more than a kind of a Dennis Wheatley-esque story about, you know, black magic during the Second World War, maybe Nazis using black magic. And uh, from reading the back, I was expecting there to be some, uh, you know, British occultists from the 1940s, perhaps raising a cone of power to stop Hitler's Operation Sea Line, as was claimed by Gerald Gardner, the self-styled father of Wicca. So that's all I was hoping for. The novel, in fact, isn't that much fun it's a lot more dull than it sounds but some odd and interesting ideas creep into it and a big part of the storyline is taken up with the idea that there are members of the living British royal family who are actually secretly part of an ancient English occult or witchcraft tradition going back into antiquity and that a living member of the family has to be ritually killed every uh, seven years I think as part of some age-old tradition in order to kind of bolster their power to fight the Nazi occultists. And this was an interesting idea, not one that shows up all the time in this kind of fiction. And wouldn't you know, there is a a thank you or an acknowledgement at the beginning of the book to Doreen Valiente, an early important Wiccan who worked with uh, Gerald Gardner, and Margaret Murray, who we have spoken about before. And this tipped me off that this writer, Catherine Kurtz, is the name of the author, and is actually an American. She's from Florida. Uh, she, and it's this is confirmed by some writing in the book, she was influenced by one of Margaret Murray's later books, The Divine King in England. And that's where the idea comes that, you know, members of the British royal family have to be sacrificed as this kind of sacrificial figure in order to perpetuate the lineage of the witch, the ancient witch religion in which uh, Margaret Murray believed and for which she is most famous. So I've talked about Margaret Murray before, but this time I'm going to get into her work 
in a little bit more detail uh, because on this episode I am speaking with Dr. Jeb Card. This is a real treat for me. Um, his work has been very influential on mine. Uh, he's the author of Spooky Archaeology and our remit here was to, at first to tackle a very broad range of topics including Margaret Murray's work, the idea of the surviving witch cult, my interest in um, the Victorian and early Edwardian ideas about supposed surviving pagan revival stuff and then the the you know this the religions that came about in the middle of the 20th century as a as a reaction or perhaps a continuation of this and this is all great stuff that um i knew dr jebcard would be tremendous to talk to about and we decided to choose a single event to focus all this stuff together and to try and give it um a little bit of a, a center so we're going to be focusing on um, the supposed witchcraft murders of Laura Quinton in England in 1945. And from there, we're going to spiral out into all of those other um, unusual elements and strange belief systems and uh, lots of really, really great stuff. So if you've enjoyed in the past when I talked about Murray or when I talked about uh, strange Victorian ideas about ancient history, um, you're going to enjoy this a whole lot more. It was a real treat to get to speak to somebody who had such a depth of knowledge on this one. I will quickly mention that um, uh, Jebcard has travelled to Laura Quinton in England to investigate this story, has visited a lot of lo the locations associated with it and tracked down um, quite a good amount of primary material associated with this. So great fun to speak to somebody who's done that good research. Okay, so as always folks, you can reach out over on Twitter where I am at Strange Ireland or Instagram, where I am White Atlantic Weird Podcast. You can say thanks by sending on some coffee over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash White Atlantic. Um, as has been my habit of late, I will be doing all the extra stuff at the end of the show after the interview. So stay tuned for continuing editions, corrections, or any other little bits and bobs uh, connected to recent episodes and things that we've covered recently. That's it for now. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Uh, hi, I'm uh, Jeb Card. I am an archaeologist. Uh, and r remind me of your cussing, uh, uh <laughs> oh, I'm, fi I'm fine with it. Yeah. And, uh, and I've used the term for myself in the past uh, or not for myself, but just all this stuff that this show is very much about as well as, um, one of the ones I do, um, and that is weird shitology. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I study, I have a background in the archaeology of particularly Mesoamerica. My dissertation work and other work has been done in El Salvador, though I've dug other places in Central America and in North America. Um, working on colonial things, classic Maya stuff. I like inscriptions, though it's not my main, not my main business. And but I've always had an interest in again, sort of the weird stuff which is one of the reasons why I do the, the, the podcast, uh, in research of, which be, starts at the beginning of paranormal television, uh, in the 1970s and eighties, but also, uh, I've written on this in relation to archeology span and I'm still working on trying to write on it in a more broad sense. Uh, so all kinds of different topics, how they've intersected with 
archaeology, ideas of the past, um, and other things too. Other things too. I guess that's what I would say. And yeah. I'm in the United States, and I'm in Ohio. So you're. This is big for me because your work was influential on my thinking, especially in kind of realizing that there is a sociological dimension to this, and that you know going further than just retelling the same stories that you'd see in these old TV mm -hmm. shows and books, where actually knowing that the people who told these stories have a history which is known and can be researched, and yeah. how the same people crop up again. And, and so suppose. Oh yeah. With that in mind, um, I, I can't oh, imagine. But, uh, on on that note, have you? Have you done, I can't remember, did you do anything with modern UFO stuff on the show? Not, no, not the post-2017 okay. stuff. I've, did I've did, did you see last night, though, and if you want to clip this, uh, uh, put off, finally just straight up said, yeah, we think the best term for all this is, is ultra-terrestrials. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Editing key in here. I don't have an audio clip of this, but I did find the paper. It's called Ultra-Terrestrial Models, published in the Journal of Cosmology. And one quote says towards the beginning, is the source of the phenomenon predominantly terrestrial, ultra-terrestrial, or extraterrestrial, assuming that distinctions between these alternatives are meaningful. And uh, Potoff's uh, kind of clarification of what he means by ultra-terrestrial here is, e.g. ancient occult groups, isolated pre-diluvial high-tech societies, or stranded ETs slash gods. We can talk about that. Anyway. Uh, I'll put that in. I'll drop that in. <laughs> so I am, I, I've mentioned in research off before, I can't imagine there are many people listening who aren't aware of it, but it really does. Um, it it kind of shows that how we got to where we are now and where the, yeah. the, the public, uh, I suppose, version of all this, where it comes from and what the history yeah. of that is. Yeah. In research uh, or in search of uh, is not the absolute first thing that we would call paranormal or esoteric or metaphysical that was on television. But it was, to my knowledge, and I could be wrong about this, the first sort of weekly or regular television show um that was not you know science fiction or fantasy or comedy or anything like that it was like no we we're investigating these mysteries and as we found a lot of them are not those topics i mean there's ones on tornadoes and hurricanes and infamously the coming ice age mm -hmm. which was there was a brief period in the 1970s when a handful of scholars thought the world might be getting cooler and those scholars quickly were like actually no it's not that but you'll still hear that pop up with climate denialism and whatnot. But since it's one of the very first paranormal things on television, myself and my co-host uh, Blake Smith, also of Monster Talk and other things, but that's his big one, uh, have been doing for a few years. We watch each episode of the original show and we dig into, as you were saying, who's on there, what's the cultural climate, and how has it impacted the larger ideas of of the weird in society mm, and well, usually there's quite a bit of nostalgic like let's talk about video games from the 80s because that always pops up but yeah sorry i'm just thinking i never caught that show growing up and it's my age and where i am in the world but sightings yeah. would have been in the 90s would have been yes um, a bit later uh, it's it's similar uh another one and i don't know if if this was in y'all's market uh one called history's mysteries which was on the american history channel uh was actually similar in many ways uh but yes yeah, sightings has some similarities there are some differences 
and there are various legal ways uh, one can find in search of as well as any number sightings is harder to come by and Blake and I very much actually talked about I'd love to do I would have loved to do what we're doing with sightings but it's not possible at least not the way we're doing it. I mean, we might be able to talk about an episode here or there, but we could not walk through it the way we're walking through uh, in search of. But but yeah, the and sightings was amazing in the sense, well, that should be on the there, put it on the back of a DVD release. Sightings was amazing. No. Um, sightings was amazing in the sense that it was really trying so hard to look like what normal television news looked like at that time. You know, uh, in search of part of the charm is it's got this funky synth music and reenactments and all of this sightings really wanted you to think you were watching ABC news or whichever news you watch with an anchor. And let's go to our correspondent on this, you know, running story and all of that. And I would love to see that again in that context, but, uh, that it's just, it's not as easily available. I'm just looking at the years here and noting it's, it's 1991, yeah. Uh, to 1997, which so it predates the X Files, which is interesting. Yes. And yeah. so it was running up and running when the X Files, which was a gigantic cultural juggernaut, really brought this mainstream. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah there were several actually. In, in doing in in research of, I've actually found that there are were several similar shows. A number of them, I think, pretty clearly inspired by the success of Unsolved Mysteries mm. on uh, in the United States on NBC. Uh, there were a couple of others. Uh, that mixed reenactment and other things. And they were a mix like in search of like very much like unsolved mysteries of here's a unsolved crime. Here's a ghost in a Toys R Us, you know, those, <laughs> those sorts of things. Um, and you know, maybe someday we'll do some bonus material on that. And then honestly, the show that probably at least in its early run now, it just seems to just be doing clip shows is probably the closest that's on, air now of course television i mean frankly most people are watching this kind of stuff on youtube or tiktok but or podcast or whatever but if you're looking at broadcast tower cable or television uh, the closest in some ways is actually ancient aliens and especially in its early years because it's not a reality show it's not like ghost hunters or most haunted or all the things that followed ghost adventures it still is trying to be that talking head documentary because, and I think this may segue into what uh, we want to talk about, it is using that authority of expertise, even if not everybody there is is an, an expert, but they're being presented as one. Um, and there's always that super tension in paranormal uh, sort of circles of, oh, we're very unhappy with materialism. We're very unhappy with mainstream science that ignores this, but oh, there's a scientist, there's a professor that likes it. Oh my God, they are now, they're the, they're the second coming of Newton. <laughs> and they will be presented without much context as to like what their other interests are or what else they've yeah. written about. Oh yes. Scientists. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's scientists like, oh, degrees no, this is an important, this is an important scientist. Let's not talk about this other thing they do, which could be interesting. But the fact that, you know, uh, for example, um, if, if you're, if, well, let's not get down that rabbit hole. I was going to talk about, um, something again, involving the UFO stuff. Let's not go down that rabbit hole. So we are going to focus on um, something from England in the 1940s. This mm -hmm. is getting into sort of magic and mysticism, the roots of what mm -hmm. would eventually 
you might call folk horror. There's elements of that in there. I wanted maybe oh, yeah. to talk about how this case had an effect on, you know, fiction later on and, and in that subgenre in particular. But this is something that is often called the witchcraft murder mm-hmm. in 1945. So yes. let's start us off maybe with the, the setting and the, the most basic. basic yeah. We'll, we'll so get into there, the personas mm-hmm. afterwards. Right. So there's a small town in, uh, well, uh, village Hamlet. I mean, I've been there. I went there in 2018. So I cover this quite a bit in uh, a book I put out in 2018, Spooky Archaeology, Myth and the Science of the Past. It's in one of the chapters. Uh, So I visited after I wrote it. But that visit was more just to sort of see the place. It really wasn't like, oh, there's no new research. But it was, you know, it was worthwhile going. But... Uh, there is a little hamlet, I'm not sure what the exact term would be, but it's not large, uh, called Lower Quinton. And the way I got there was I was in Birmingham for a conference, which, you know, time is a flat circle. Uh, we'll see. Someone else was there for a conference earlier uh, and went to Lower Quinton. And I took the train to Stratford-on-Avon, which is big, of course, Shakespeare, you know, lots of tourism stuff there, and then took the bus from there to Lower Quinton. So if that gives you an idea of roughly where it is. So small town, and on 14 February 1945, uh, a body of an older gentleman, an older, he was a laborer on farms, did like farm work, but wasn't, you know, worked on other people's work, uh, named Charles Walton, uh, was found dead, which maybe was his worst Valentine's day. I may have had worse ones. Uh, he was found dead of violence in the field. And he, uh, if I remember correctly, there's a, there's, there's a pitchfork kind of it's it's often shown as through his chest but it, it may be somewhat closer to being I'm, I'm i've read the autopsy file i'm trying to remember but a little closer to the neck and his neck is is sliced open with um a farm implement uh which is still there so basically he's pinned to the ground and he's dead you know he's been dead clearly and he's discovered um and the primary so I went and looked at, and and before I go further, let's, I want to mention three books. There may be others, but three books that this is either their primary focus or in one case, it's half their focus. There may be others I'm not aware of, but uh, in, I think, chronological order, if I have them right, I know this one's the earliest of these one, and we're going to come back to this because it's important for our topic is called Murder by Witchcraft by Donald McCormick. And the subtitle on the cover is A Study of the Lower Quentin and Hagley Wood Murders, which we may talk about, but in case we don't, the Hagley Wood Murders are probably known to your listeners with the phrase, who put Bella in the witch elm? The second one is um, Under the Shadow of Me and Hill, the Lower Quentin and Hagley Wood Murders, so a similar title by Paul Newman. The other one, McCormick's in the 60s. I'll look exactly when. This one is 2009. The McCormick is nearly impossible to get a copy of unless you're spending a huge amount of money, by the way. I waited several years to get mine, looking constantly online. Uh, 1968, that's what I thought. And then the third one, which I think is probably the most approachable, and I would recommend it. Uh, The Case That Foiled Fabian, Murder and Witchcraft in Rural England by Simon Reed. 
And I don't know either Reed or Newman. I don't think McCormick is still with us. I could be wrong about that. Uh, 2014. And if you're looking into, if you're more interested in this topic, that's probably the one you're going to want to pick up. And all three are pretty slim. They're not large. They're not large tomes. Um, but that one inspired me to go uh, looking into the case file, which is at the National Archives near Kew Gardens in uh, London. Uh, of the Metropolitan Police. Now, I am no expert on policing, but uh, it appeared that the Met, of course, is, you know, nicknamed Scotland Yard. Uh, they are obviously operational in London, Metropolitan Police of London. They're not the only police force, but they're the, the, more, the most famous one. Uh, but also they can be called in, again, my understanding, not a legal expert, no barrister here, um, to solve significant crimes or work on significant crimes elsewhere, which as an American, that makes me think of something like the FBI uh, that, you know, has a national remit, but for certain crimes. Uh, so they get involved. And in the actual case file in 1945, even though the war is on, there's a lot of investigation that kind of that was really interesting to me. Uh, how much effort was put in because they talked to locals. There was one local in particular. I'm not going to go dig his name up. It's in all of these. That was the guy that Walton worked for. Okay. Uh, they talked to a whole bunch of Italian prisoners of war because by this point, the Italian government, I, I, again, I'm sort of out of my depth on this, but had switched sides in, in world war two. And all these 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 guys were still POWs, but it was really lax. Like they had the ability to go out of the out of the prison. They had the ability to do stuff outside. It was not, you know, a lockdown type situation. So there was the concern because I think somebody said something about the way of killing or something. I mean, the reality is it was because there were a bunch of prisoners of war nearby. They interviewed a lot of them. And the investigation pretty quickly was like, yeah, it's not them. Uh, there's no reason to believe it's them. Uh, ultimately, the guy in charge, and we're going to talk more about him, Robert Fabian, who was generally sort of one of the top investigators of the Met of Scotland Yard, as he'll call himself, um, ultimately concluded in the file that he thought the likely suspect, because he was suspicious for so for several reasons, was Walton's boss, that there had been some kind of argument probably involving money and he had killed him, uh, but he couldn't prove it. And he's like, someday someone might be able to get this going, but we can't prove it. And that's in 1945. And the reason why Reed's book, the case that foiled Fabian is called that is also, this is Fabian's last case. So he, he does not solve his 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 big last case. That is basically all it is in 1945. What what part have I as it's in all three titles? Uh, what part hasn't come up? Nothing about uh, witchcraft. Nothing yeah. about witchcraft at all. That comes later. And I don't know if you want to introduce the person we're really talking about. Or if you want to have that, I, I think we kind of have to. I think we have to talk. I assume about you're it. referring to Margaret Murray. 
Margaret Murray, yes. Yeah, so you've done some shows on on Margaret Murray. What what have you? I mean, I've so listened to them, but but what? Very have you long kinda, time ago. Yeah. Very long time ago, I did a, a brief run through of Margaret Murray's life and the most famous elements of her work with the witch cult stuff. But uh, as I know, she wrote a lot more books after witch cult in Western Europe, and her ideas became stranger, I think, over time. And this is this being closer to the end of her life. Um, her ideas were quite different to the or they had evolved, I suppose, from what most people probably know if they have heard of Margaret Murray and the witch cult. But let's mm-hmm. do a generic cover for okay. what her life was and her ideas. So so first of all, have you uh, have you read her autobiography? I have not. I've read the witch cult. Ah, and it was so she's going. got she's got three books on on the witch cult. She has several publications from earlier in her career, including books on um Egyptology because she was an early Egyptologist and an important one. Uh, and then in, see, I, I think it's her life is 1864 to 1964 or it's 1863 to 1963. I think it's for either way, early, early sixties to early sixties. She wrote her autobiography with 13 chapters. If I remember correctly, one on archeology, span one on the occult, um, Called it my first 100 years because she was 100 years old and then passed away, which is how you do it, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, she was an important Egyptologist, one of the the first female Egyptologists. There, there were others of her generation, and it's fascinating to read some of the discussions of of her uh, and them in Egypt. And then they went on to do other uh, do other work, not just in Egypt but elsewhere. But she became a student and her autobiography talks about the struggles as a female student and and scholar and how there were all these roadblocks that she um, and of course, this is all in the context of of suffragism, which she was involved in. Uh, You know, she had a lot to overcome. Hmm. Uh, She was born in India. Uh, but, uh, does move to, to England and, and lives there for, I think the vast majority of her life, if I remember correctly, but she does move around. Obviously she goes to UCL studies under Flinders Petrie. I don't know if you've talked about him. I've, I've mentioned him as yeah. In in relation to Murray. Okay. Yeah. Flinders Petrie is sometimes called often called the first scientific Egyptologist in the sense that he was, he worked on historical periods. And by, and I mean, in the sense of um, historical archeology, span if you hear that phrase, usually refers to the last 500 years, basically the modern world in that sense and colonialism. But he worked on all sorts of sites in what we would consider, you know, the pharaonic period, the period with hieroglyphs and whatnot in Egypt, including especially Amarna. Uh, Tel El Amarna, aka Achet Aten, the uh, the heretic uh, oh, king yes, and his capital. Yes. Tons of work there, but he also was interested in stuff that was earlier before writing. So instead of being sort of in the more classical tradition of I just study the writing and maybe architecture, uh, sort of a sh- offshoot of antiquarianism, but you know more scholarly, he started doing other kinds of archaeology, like dirt archaeology. Uh, he was more involved in that. Uh, he is often credited, although this is not exactly accurate, as the inventor of what we call seriation or sequence dating or style dating. There were things he was building off. But this is, you know, we don't radiocarbon everything. In fact, that's that's uncommon depending on what you're dealing with we, or other kinds of tests. You know, when I'm working, my dissertation was on 
uh, pottery in the 16th century, and I studied about 45,000 pieces of pottery for my dissertation. We weren't chemically testing those things for age. We were looking at them like, oh, well, that looks like this, therefore it's from this period. Putting those kinds of things in sequence, knowing how styles change, that's a common way we date stuff that we calibrate with physical techniques like radiocarbon as well as historical records and other kinds of absolute dating. He was one of the pioneers of how to do this. And uh, he did other kinds of, again, and he encouraged people to look much older in Egypt. Like, go look at, like, Paleolithic things. Don't just look at the pharaohs. And so uh, Murray was one of his students and did work uh, in Egypt for a number of seasons. And she did do work later on this topic. But her Egyptology was especially earlier. She's really important also because she she did some important early work on language, also some kind of ethnography amongst um, Coptic people. Uh, Copts are a religious minority in um, Egypt, uh, and they're descended from the Christian community that was in Egypt, and that was a major place of Christianity in the first centuries um, CE. And that's also where, over the centuries, descendants of older Egyptian language went to. So to know hieroglyphs, for example, required that there had to be understanding of Coptic, which uh, uh, had happened in centuries earlier. But in addition to her fieldwork and her scholarship, she also taught so many of the students at University College London at UCL. Uh, basically, that means she taught an entire generation or more of what becomes Egyptology. And that's a pretty damn important thing. Uh, so that's her Egyptology thing in world war one in the great war. She is not able to work in Egypt for pretty obvious reasons. Uh, everyone's too busy with the war. And in fact, uh, I don't know if you've talked about this, but a huge amount of the British empire's intelligence network during the war in that region were all archeologists. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's right. the Oxford Four, Gertrude Bell, yeah. um, and, uh, oh, I'm blanking on the others, but the most famous one, of T. course. T.E. Lawrence, yeah, was one. T.E. Lawrence, yeah. Mm -hmm. T.E. Lawrence uh, and Woolley, Leonard Woolley and uh, Hogarth. That's the that's the Oxford Four. Uh, yeah, all really important. So she wasn't involved in that, but she couldn't go work in Egypt. So she tried her hand for a while. She would have been, what, in her 50s at this point doing nursing work for the war and that didn't work out entirely. She did it, but she, you know, it's like, Oh, this is not for me. Um, yeah. Uh, and she got ill at one point. And so she went where if you have any kind of sort of mystical bent and you kind of are wanting to heal and you're in England, where might you go? Well, there might be several places, but one that kind of sticks out would be Glastonbury. And so she goes and lives in Glastonbury for a time, which, by the way, at this time and so shortly after, the Abbey, which is kind of the center of all of this, as well as the tour, of course, uh, is being excavated and reconstructed uh, by Frederick Bly Bond. And everyone's excited by what he's doing for this re reconstruction until he publishes. Oh, by the way, you know how I did it? I went into the Great Memoria, which is kind of like the Akashic Records. Uh, psychic knowledge beyond and talk to the ancient monks that built it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, 
big deal. It's it's yeah, there's a whole bunch there. And there's pretty good chance that they at least ran into each other, uh, maybe saw a public talk, that sort of thing. But while she's in Glastonbury, um, she starts to get really interested in Arthurian legend and lore. And this is when she starts getting interested in witchcraft. Uh, and what she's doing is she's very, it's very clear that she's following in the footsteps of, um, uh, Fraser, uh, James Fraser. Yeah. James Fraser, the author Golden of the golden bow. bow. Yes. Now, did you do, did you do a Gog Magog episode? I can't I did remember. not. No. Okay. All right. Um, because that also is when you read them, they're so clearly kind of following in that, in the footsteps of Fraser, but Fraser's golden bow, uh, which is around the turn of the century is very influential. It, it's an early work of anthropology, but what it, it, but it's not ethnography. A lot of it's taken from travelers accounts, historical accounts. It's, it's, it's armchair in that sense, but it's, so it's ethnology and it's extensive. It's extensive ethnology. I mean, you go to a bookstore, they'll sell you the abridged copy, which is this big honking, you know, book. The actual book is 13 volumes and they are not thin volumes. I mean, for the nerds out there, it's not just a joke, but there's a reason why it's one of the few real books that shows up in the game, the role-playing game Call of Cthulhu. Mm. and it has a sanity loss no cthulhu <laughs> mythos knowledge it's just if you read all 13 of these you've lost it <laughs> you lost a little bit of sanity i think it's a 1d4 i think it's a zero 1d4 but um but he was so things like the ideas of contagious and sympathetic magic come from here and other really key elements that become important in the broader conversation of things like magic, religion, and witchcraft are in Fraser. Um, and she is following in his footsteps. And the key concept here is the notion of survivals. And yeah, I think it's very hard to talk about any of this stuff. And I don't mean what we're talking about here, just saying any of this stuff at all without the notion of survivals, uh, survivals from the past. And the core concept here is the notion of disenchantment and this ties into concepts of time oh my god i've opened a giant wormhole here <laughs> um so i i argue and others would argue and i think there's i think this is pretty true that kind of cross-culturally there's there are exceptions but kind of cross-culturally there seem to be two basic ways with sort of where they meet being integral um where uh, of how people think of time and time of usually the last couple of generations is seen as time like us. You know, these people had our concerns. They had, they are, you know, they're human. They're like us. Even if we sometimes talk about them doing legendary things, you know, all of that. Um, they're like us. We can think of them like us. We can tie them to us. They can, we can tie them to our community in a very normal way. Like, oh, this person lived here too. You know, that sort of thing. Um, and that gets all different kinds of names. I've heard it called scientific time, human time, the time with names, whatever. Most of the rest is old, is ancient. I mean, this is, this is why the term ancient gets used for things that are wildly different. I mean, I don't think people talk about ancient Charlemagne, do they? 
Not, not heard of it. Not really. I mean, Charlemagne, of course, is important. I mean, Charlemagne's at the end of what's known as the classic period of the Maya. But everyone talks about the ancient Maya. It's like, but but it's like, you know, the ancient Maya, there are like universities and whatnot that are still in operation from that period in Europe. Then we don't call them ancient. You know, it's it's just that they're all old. Time becomes flattened. It becomes flattened into old, ancient, antique, <laughs> um, uh, you know, all, all these antiquity, basically. And that time is more mythic. And myth in this context does not mean wrong. It's not like the TV show Mythbusters or that's, a, well, that's not true. That's a myth. It means it is a story that makes sense of our world and usually is bigger than us. It doesn't always mean that it would have what we would call supernatural or other kinds of overtones. And of course that already is a mess of a term, but it can, I mean, for example, if I ask you to talk about, like, if you go to a person like, Hey, can you name some, some ancient animals, some like really old animals? What are they probably going to say? They'll talk about dinosaurs. For dinosaurs. Yeah. yeah. Dinosaurs and maybe mammoths. Okay. Uh, why? Because they're big. They make us think of monsters and we've come up with all these different kinds of stories like, oh, that old dinosaur because it's extinct because it's old. That car is a dinosaur. That concept is a... these are mythic things. You know, we don't it's like, oh, name some ancient animals. Unless you're into this stuff, you're not going to say like, oh, yeah, like that 57 million year old tree shrew. Paleontologists would. Zoologists might. But everyday people aren't. And, you know, the Big Bang. You know, in other words, we do this with the past, too. Human history, there are certain events that loom large that we think of as really important and that often have narrative elements and a moral to the story, that sort of thing. Those are myths. And those things are usually of that kind of older than names, older than history. History, whether it's oral history or whether it is written history. Uh, and that time in between, which used to, you know, people used to call things like the dawn of history has a foot in both. And that's actually where usually names of groups come from. So like, oh, the, the Germans that's named after Germanicus, the Roman that wrote about them, the Cherokee, the Aztec, I mean, the Aztec empire, first of all, it shouldn't be called the Aztec empire it was the Mexica, the triple lions, et cetera. But that's a hundred years old when the Spaniards arrive. That's it. Now. It's part of a much deeper cultural tradition, of course. The Inca <laughs> Empire is basically the same, yes. You'll know those polls that go around about, like, what supernatural things do people believe in? Yeah. And inevitably, you know, the numbers for, oh, do you believe that aliens are visiting us? And the numbers will be relatively low. And then they say, mm -hmm. do you believe that aliens may have existed in the past? And they just say the past because like, everything is flattened. Yeah. And that number is always much higher. And even yeah. just anecdotally talking to friends about what they might be open to or not open to, mm -hmm. you, you're, what you're referring to is this kind of almost instinctive belief that there's something mystical about deep time and yes. times long ago, and that therefore we're more open to strange things happening then than we are now. Right. And so that's the world of magic. That's yeah. the world. That's the world of magic. And so there's this myth. And again, I, I use that in this sense, although some would also say it's a myth in the colloquial sense of disenchantment that with modernity, with uh, reductionist science, with material science, with industry, with all the changes that frankly also are tied to colonialism in the last 
five centuries or so, and especially really, usually people think about it since like the 17th and 18th century, you know, if you're talking about science, um, that that got rid of those things. Think of all the fantasy stories you've heard where it's, there's a magical world, but it's fading. You know, the elves are taking their ships and going to the West. Uh, you know, this world is fading away and it's becoming our world. Well, that's that myth. And people like Frazier and Murray, there was the idea that there may still be things out there that one, we can maybe find them in history, but it would also be great if we could find survivals. This is where the store, the study of folklore comes from. The idea that older, more mythic, maybe more magical, maybe more authentic things, if you're going to find them, you're not going to find them in the cities. Now, of course, today we all talk about, you know, urban legends and folklore. We know that that, but that idea didn't exist. There was other one. Well, this will be the age of reason. That's why they're like, we're going to build a museum and it will create rational citizens. And what does it do? It creates, oh my God, the museum and everything in it is cursed. <laughs> uh, and if you go to you know 19th century London, they build the British Museum. That's also like the occult heart of London. Yes. And that happens after. Like the museum is basically, let's draw. It's like the old game uh, Sim City. Oh, if you yeah. put this here, then things will grow around it. It's like that <laughs> uh, for I, magic. I also think that at the, I mean, you've got some, I've just finished rereading uh, Hutton's Triumph yeah. of the Moon, where he, mm -hmm. he really goes into this stuff very, very well. And I mean, you've got you've got colonialism ha happening. You've got urbanization happening. You've got at the same time that we're becoming more, quote unquote, rational and urbanized and mechanical. You know, this we need to place our enchantment somewhere else. So this obsession with the countryside and the purity of the countryside. And not, not only that, but you've got these new nation states appearing and yes. these new ideas of nationalism. And, yes. you know, in, in the Irish, there's an Irish wing to this where it is mm -hmm. very deliberately an anti-colonial reconception yes. of ourselves as being not English or not British where we dig into the folklore to try and show that we are a different thing. We're our own selves. But in each case, it's, it's similar to the British um, reconception of themselves mm -hmm. through folklore as like the, the true people are in the countryside, not in the yes. city. And the, the true folk and the true stories and the true songs. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is the obsession with even like Cecil Sharp and all these people who are collecting. Well, I thought you were going to say WB Yeats. Or Yeats, yeah, absolutely. But again, it, it's so it's so interesting how it it can have a, a nationalist tone or not, or it, it yes. can serve different purposes, but it's all about identifying the self and the group of people. Absolutely. In fact, one of the reasons Glastonbury got attention was people trying to make it the origin of Christianity. Um, that, you know, the whole Joseph of Arimathea and, you know, did those feet in ancient times, you know, that's, yes. and the idea that the Holy Grail and the thorn and all of that to create a, a, an English, a British Christianity. And apparently that idea is actually quite old, but let's not get off the track on no, that. As, as late as yeah. the 1940s. I mean, yeah, Tolkien, oh, yeah. one, one of Tolkien's, he always said that he was trying to create a distinctly uh, mythology. English kind of mythology because mm -hmm. he felt that they lacked it by comparison with the other European New nations. So that, that was always really, even as late as that in 1940s then, of course, is when this witchcraft murder happens. So this yeah. is what's in the ether. Well, and then, of course, there, there's one other thing, and it's and it's coming from Murray. So so Murray is, uh, oh, and I will just say in uh, the Western Hemisphere, uh, this gets more entangled with colonialism, but it's the same concept with in, indigenous people. And this idea of, oh, if we can study them, we can get closer to these stories. And if and the idea, this is big one, you've, you've probably seen all the sculptures, you know, the end of the trail or the great spirit where it's 
very much the quote, and I'm using this term because it's a term, I'm not using this on anybody, the noble savage idea yes. uh, where, oh, they're really great and all, but they're going away. They're disappearing, right? Well, they're not disappearing mm -hmm. and they're not timeless. They're yeah. people too. They're changing in all sorts of ways. And in class, I often compare this to the sculpture of the dying Gaul uh, and Roman attitudes towards people to the north, which in many ways echo that. But it's the same. It's the same sort of thing. But Murray, she goes to she goes to Glastonbury and starts getting really interested in witchcraft. And probably the the most important product of this is her 1921 book, The Witch Cult in Western Europe. And I believe it says something in anthropological study. I think that's the subtitle, if I remember correctly. Anthropology is clearly up front there. Um, which you have to remember, anthropology at that time, that term was often used for the sort of like race science, the nasty race science of like measuring skulls and whatnot. It did also mean what we think of it today. But many times if you saw that, it's like, oh, but that's not what she was doing. That's not what she was doing. Um but in there, if have you read it? Have you have you read? Yes, I have. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's a slog. <laughs> it's hard going. It's a hard slog because it's all of her evidence, or most of her evidence, comes from the trial, the witch yeah. the witch trial <laughs> periods, which are not medieval for folks. They are early modern. They are of predominantly the 16th and 17th centuries. Uh, people in in my part of the world always point to Salem and like that's very late, actually. Mm. Uh, it's extremely late in 1692. And of course, Salem was only one part of it. It was all up and down the coast. Um, but she's using those. And one of the reasons it's a slog is she does that thing that scholars often did at the time, assume that you read a bunch of European languages. So she's not translating almost any of it. It's like, oh, here's a French account. <laughs> yes, there is. And, you know, if you if you know at least one romance language, at least for these purposes, you can probably follow along. But for a modern reader, that might be a, a pain. She does that with the the Scottish trials. And it feels like Lovecraft when he's trying to write what people sound like. <laughs> yeah. Elfides, that, that sort of thing. Um, but uh, in there, her basic her basic model, her her, her concept is that these trials are catching the end. And at that time, she said she thought this was gone. And this will become important for our story. The end of a very ancient religion to the point, and as she develops it. Now, I may be blending things from her later book. She writes that one, uh, The God of uh, the Witches. And if you're uh, at a keyboard, if you can look up the third one, I'm trying to remember the name of it. Um, divine, the Divine King of England. Yes, that's the third one. Yeah. Um, but they're all three about the same topic. Uh, so she later brings in some archaeology here. But her first one's really focused on the witchcraft records. And she traces them. And she argues that they are the very tail end of a deep religion, which he eventually suggests is the religion, the ancient religion. Uh, and we'll talk about how she does that in a moment, but that it goes all the way back to the paleolithic and it is pre-agricultural and that it had survived. But after Christianity arrived, it had started to become first demonized by outsiders. And then they kind of like, the people that were still doing it in the folk country were like, yeah, no, we'll take that. 
you know, it was that sort of reveling in, yeah, no, we do evil things because it was scary to people and they could use it to political, you know, all this sort of thing. And that it was finally stamped out in, and, it, and it had become corrupted and it had, and it was finally stamped out in that early modern period. And it was really popular. I mean, one thing, of course, everybody always mentions, well, I don't know if everybody always mentions, she was asked to write the entry in the Encyclopedia mm. Britannica on witchcraft, and it stayed there for decades. That yes. would be the equivalent of writing the Wikipedia entry on witchcraft today. Like, it's the, unless you're a deep scholar, that's the thing you're going to read about what witchcraft is. Can you speak so, to how this was how this was taken by academia at the time? Yes. Um, initially... Uh, now I may be making some, I know there's some people that looked at this a little, uh, deeper, but my basic understanding is that in the 1920s, when she comes out with the first book, um, basically a lot of academics, some ignored it. Others were like, that's intriguing. There was not a massive amount of pushback. I think the people that weren't terribly excited by it basically just let it ride. They, they weren't terribly concerned about it. Um, but one of the reasons why it really did hit a tone for people is prior to this. Now, she was not the first one to come up with this idea. There is uh, Charles Leland, who says that he finds uh, an ancestral witch in Italy uh, and uh, writes Aradia, the Gospel of the Witches. And there's a lot of debate about, like, did he just basically write most of this? If, you know, like, how much did he create? Uh, and there's other examples earlier in the 19th century, but she's the real work on this. She's the one that really, you know, brings it to the fore and it was popular as a concept because it wasn't, oh, everyone is superstitious, you know, oh, this is all just superstitions and it was all nonsense or, uh, witches are real and they actually serve the devil and all of this is real and magic is real, which would be kind or, or evil or all that, which would be, I guess, kind of like your Montague Summers sort of approach. Yeah. yeah. Um, she was like, no, it's real. The myths aren't all just nonsense, but it's not supernatural. It's material. It's cultural. And what is it doing? It is giving a pipeline all the way back to the Paleolithic, to the beginning of time, more or less, if you're thinking about humans in that perspective. Uh, and it's in Europe. You know, the fact that the first one is called the witch cult in Western Europe, I think, is no accident. It's not just that's that's where she looked. Uh, and so that one, that, that idea was kind of interesting. People took it. Uh, but it was not like a big hullabaloo. But it did influence people. And some several people it influenced were fiction writers. Uh, the big one, of course, uh, one, well, I'm not sure the big one at the time he becomes obviously the big one is HP Lovecraft. He absolutely thought this was cutting edge anthropology to the point where he was going on for pages about it in letters to Robert E. Howard, the creator of Conan. And he, they collaborated on stuff, uh, and they were pen pals. They never met, um, and Howard died before, uh, Lovecraft. But uh, they created a lot of things, and it's also in their works. I mean, it's in the Call of Cthulhu. It's mm. in several of his works. And I make a very, I think, I think a pretty good argument that clearly the Cthulhu cult in that story is based on Murray. Yeah. It, there, some of the words are very similar to ones she uses, some of the descriptions and the idea. And in his commonplace book, his notes, he writes, 
uh, when he, the, he he didn't say exactly which days of the year they were, but based on when he we think he read Murray, you can see major. I think frankly he reads Murray and he reads Fort Charles Fort, and that's when he becomes the H.P. Lovecraft we know. Like prior to that, he was doing stuff like William Hope Hodgson and Poe and others. And after that, he writes a couple of stories leading up to Cthulhu that have elements of this. Uh, and then he writes Cthulhu has all of it. And then he's, we're off to the races that becomes what we know. That's, you know, he didn't call it the Cthulhu mythos, but that's why I'm not so bad about that term. Cause I think that really is the one that makes it all, makes it all click. Um, but, uh, in his commonplace book, one of the things that's clearly about the story that becomes called Cthulhu, he uses the phrase witch cult. Mm. Yeah, it's like, come on. That's and it's right around the time he's reading it. Definitely the first place I came across her work as well. Um, yeah. He, he's he's not sympathetic towards them. He's he To him, they are no. this degenerate, you know, that's the kind of language he uses to describe. And mm -hmm. inevitably, it's like non-white people who are more susceptible to the cult and to the call of Cthulhu. And there's right. a very strong racial element going on there. How, how was Murray's attitude towards this? Was she yeah. sympathetic or did she look at them as... As as an as a positive you know nature based thing or was it it's more... it's hard to tell entirely. So first of all, Lovecraft, yeah, he very much racialized it because he was a huge racist, and it drives his work. You know, like it or not, it does. And in fact, I can think of I'm just going to throw this out there completely for listeners, especially if you're a certain age. This this is one of the best non Lovecraft Lovecraft stories. Charles Strauss's um, A Colder War. It's a novella. You can find it online. I mean, it's, he's, you know, it's out there. You don't have to purchase anything. It's really good. Uh, and the reason why I say it's really good and why I bring it up is I've read so many Lovecraft style stories after him and I don't like them because they're not racists in the same way. They don't want to do that, you know, so they, they pull that out and there's always something missing from those stories. It feels like there's some fear. And if they find another fear to put in, then those stories work for Lovecraft. It was variety of fears with race being a big part of it Strauss puts in nuclear war mm. and uh he's more famous for the laundry novels uh this is a, oh, yes, in the same yes. this is in the same vein but it's a bit more serious it's still funny but it's not quite as I mean I, he'd probably get very angry if I used the word zany but it's not <laughs> quite as it's not quite as satiric it's satiric but it's it's a little more horrific in some ways. It's kind of say. a sequel to At the Mountains of Madness or a follow-up. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, but he puts in nuclear war. It's terrifying. Take that out of Lovecraft. So yeah, he did see he did see the cult. He saw the cult. He saw witches as yeah either racial others or degenerate members of upper part of society. And if you think about things today, like all the conspiracies that are running around, things like, you know, QAnon and whatnot, it, it's a very similar pattern. And that's a whole, we could get onto that. But Murray, um, she was not praising the group to the skies. I think she was trying to treat them like a ethnographic group, uh, you know, trying to describe them and did say at times they did some things that were not great. But in the same way that you would say that about some other anthropological study of a group and that you're not judging per se, like, oh, they do this. And occasionally there was, you know, ritual murder. Look at Frazier. Everyone does ritual murder like that sort of that sort of attitude. Mm -hmm. um, it also was it was definitely more feminist and more balanced 
but I mean, the second book is called the God of the witches. You know, it's, it's, it's the, the notion of a very strong feminist neo-paganism is a well, and we'll probably talk, we'll have to talk about this actually a little, but it's, it's, it's a somewhat later development. It's not quite as strong with hers, it, but you can detect parts of it, uh, in there. Uh, but yeah, she's not like, oh my God, these horrible, evil people. No, that said over time, the element of murder and sacrifice becomes more important. That is actually, that actually gets us to, to the, to the, well, what we're talking about. And that third book, again, I'm blanking on the name of something, the, the ritual, the the king of, um, the divine king of England. Yes. The Viking. So that's straight out of Fraser. You know, Fraser's book uses as its entry the idea of the killing of the king, the the the, the mythic idea. Uh, he uses the priest of Nemi. This is where the name, the Golden Bough, comes from. Of there being a ritual king at a at a Roman temple every year, uh, and then the new one comes and slays him. And the idea that the king is part of the land and all of this. She was arguing, and this is where she started to get criticism. Uh, in that last book, she was arguing that many of the deaths of royalty or people near royalty in the last several centuries, so basically the the early modern period, were actually the fact that the cult was actually still being followed in the halls of power uh, and that these were the the ritual killing of the king. I see Uh, here that that book is 1954, so by that point she has evolved her ideas that this is still going on. And so I I believe in the earlier books she assumed that this had died off a couple of hundred years ago or something. And that sets the stage. Now, the other author, again, there's multiple, but another author that she influences, and I'm I'm not going to dwell on this, but this sets up where we're going, is Dennis Wheatley. And I know you did at least My favorite. <laughs> the movie, the, the one, yeah, the movie, uh, the devil rides out, which I've out, seen. Yeah. I, I have yet to sit down really with Wheatley. I've, I've skimmed some of his stuff, but I haven't sat down to digest it. I should. Um, but, uh, Wheatley's writing in the thirties. I remember yes. if I remember correctly, yes. yeah. his, his and, most important, yeah. Occult novels are in the thirties. Yeah. Yeah. And I think most people argue that. And there are even some at least allusions to her in there. It's not quite like Lovecraft, but there's an influence. And he mentions Fraser outright as well. Okay, great. Perfect. Uh, (laughs) And then there's the war. Not a lot of interest. After the war, there starts to be this real sort of bubbling interest in concepts of witchcraft. And... Uh, now, have you all talked about, I, I can't remember her name, but there was the one, uh, is it Marjorie? I can't remember. The the last person um, prosecuted under the Witchcraft oh, Act? No, we haven't. No. I, I... During the war. And uh, it's 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 uh, a medium. Oh, was and it Helen Duncan? No? Maybe, actually. I'm not certain. No, look I don't. Well, look. anyway, there's, there's there, yeah, look it up. There's a medium and... Uh, she's and and people are going to her to know about their loved ones at war, you know, not not surprising. And one goes to this medium and it's like, well, what about my I think it's her son that she's asking about. It's like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, there was a shipwreck or, it was, you know, it was just, her, his ship was destroyed, all et cetera, et cetera. And this person who was asking was in the social circles to talk to someone else in, in the Navy. Her son was dead. Her sh- her son's ship was destroyed but it was a secret at the time. Like that was not in the press. 
And they're like, well, how the hell did you find this out? And it basically the story gets told to them. And they're like, does, did this medium find this out? Cause they're very worried about spies. They're very worried about, you know, uh, loose lips sink ships. And, uh, they're like, well, maybe she's not a spy, but maybe she talks to you. either way. She's saying things she shouldn't be saying. Well, what should we do? And someone had the bright idea. They're like, she's a medium. Well, you know, technically the witchcraft act is still on the books. And so they, so they jail her for the war to basically make sure she's not talking to anybody else. Uh, and so that's in that time period. And of course there's the stories about, um, some of the things that went on during the war with ideas of protecting the Island from magic. And there's all these sorts of things, but after the war, there starts to be a growing interest. And I, I have a pet theory personally, or pet hypothesis that, uh, witchcraft accusations often can be found in sort of decolonizing environments or after, after a loss in war especially foreign wars. Uh, and I don't want to get deep into that, but I do think there's some of that going on. And some of the stuff I looked at to research, like some of the, the newspapers to research Murray's involvement in this, I think back that up and we can talk about that. But this is also the period where you get Gerald Gardner. Mm. Uh, and remind me, have you done a Gerald Gardner episode? I teased uh, that I would someday um, at the end of my Margaret Murray episode, but then I, I never felt that I had a take you know what I mean? Yeah. It's such a huge topic. And I thought mm-hmm. either I need the right person to talk about it or I need a unique take on it. And, I've and I'm it. I'm not that person. I'm <laughs> not that person. But but briefly and for our story, Gardner uh, is interested in folklore and all these other things and interested in magic. He rolls in these circles uh, and he, the way he describes it. And again, I'm I'm not going to go deeper on this. Also, you mentioned Ronald Hutton earlier, you know, he's doing, uh, an online lecture series. I saw that. Yeah. The Gresham thing. Um, but he basically, he's been called, you know, the origin of Wicca, which of course he's not it solely. There's a bunch of other people involved, but you know, there's Gardnerian Wicca, but in essence, as the witchcraft act comes down and it's able, you can, you're able to talk about this stuff more. Uh, he writes, um, uh, several books, uh, on the nature of witchcraft. And he's also a very eccentric character. Uh, one, if you've ever seen a picture of him, he's got that hair (laughs) everywhere and he's eccentric on camera. And he's also really great for the press because when I show, say an image of him in class, I always say, and kids be glad I found one of the few pictures of Gerald Gardner where he's fully dressed yes, because <laughs> he was a, what do they call them? That not a naturalist, but basically naturist. Nature, naturist. Naturist. Yeah. Naturist, yeah. And so he's really, that's why a lot of the sky clad stuff is there. It's not the only reason, but he, that's part of it. I mean, his own interests, if you think of sort of the classic image of an athame, uh, ritual knife, a lot of them are not like this, but I remember when I was growing up, they were, the image was like, they were the little curvy knife. Mm. Uh, that's because he was really interested in Chris knives. Cause he, uh, he spent time in the Indian ocean on like some kind of, I think a tea plantation or something. That's right, yeah. And, and he actually wrote a folklore work on, um, on those weapons, on those kinds of weapons. So that's, that's him. And he knew Murray. I think, I think they were friends. They were certainly acquaintances cause he was, she was at, at one time the president of the folklore society. He was in the folklore society. They worked together. And they must have been, I don't know if they were friends, friends. They clearly were colleagues because 
Murray writes the foreword to his big book, to his first big book. Uh, which, witchcraft Today, was it? Yes. Witchcraft, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. In the mid-50s uh, after the witchcraft laws yep. are gone. And that's that and public uh, appearances in, in film and then early television, et cetera, basically kicks off the in, like the sort of, you know, people were doing paganism before, neo-paganism before, but that really kind of kicks off the interest in it in a big way. So that's all going on. And so Murray has influenced things like Wheatley, has influenced Gardner, uh, because Gardner basically takes her idea. And he says, oh, I, what I forgot to say, and this is important to the story, he says he goes to the New Forest in southern England and finds a coven. And there's a lot of debate about how accurate this all is and how much of it is tied to ceremonial magic coming out of things like the Hermetic Order, the Golden Dawn in London in the late 19th century, et cetera, et cetera. I I don't think anybody says, oh, he made any of this up or he made it up, but more how ancient is this really? You know, it's decades old. Sure. Is it centuries old? It's that kind of question. What does that even mean? You know, questions of authenticity become very sticky very quickly. But... she's influenced the conversation it's in encyclopedia Britannica, which is basically like, you know, again, the Wikipedia of our, of their time. Uh, it's all over the place. 1950, five years after, um, Charles Walton meets a nasty end. The case is reopened. And the reason why the case is reopened is that there are new alleged evidences that the case involved witchcraft. There is an article in the news, a big long news article, and it's copied in various other places as well. Um, in, I believe January, 1950 that say, ah, uh, if you look at this case, um, one that there had been a murder decades earlier, of a woman who was in the middle of the street and a guy came up and was yelling she was a witch and stabbed her to death with a pitchfork. And then also allegedly there was a Charles Walton who was a young boy and whether it's the same one seems unlikely, but it's not certain, um, who was involved in there were stories that he used, you know, magical folk rituals. In other words, all of a sudden there's all this, Oh, there's all this witchcraft around this time and pitchforks and all of that. Um, and could this be what's going on here? It's this big, all of a sudden becomes this big sensation. Any guesses as to who wrote that? The article? Was it Murray? <laughs> was it Murray? It was Robert Fabian. Oh, the of course. guy who had investigated it in 1945. He's like, oh my God, look at all of this. And if you go to the Met, uh, the Metropolitan Police, like the case file, uh, it gets reopened at that point, and there are statements. They talk to the descendant of the woman who's murdered. They they try to look into these other things. Now, Murray's not in there, but this thing is written in January. This is the first time witchcraft gets brought into the case. There is none of it in the 1945 investigation when Fabian is saying, yeah, I think his boss killed him in an argument. Now, Fabian's writing is this witchcraft was the 14th actually a witch day based on scholars and all these sorts of things. Right. Um, Fabian was turning himself into one of the first true crime celebrities. 
He was writing up his adventures in a series of books. One of my favorite bits is he writes um, in one of them about the secret uh, witchcraft layers that, you know, there are there are cults in in London and elsewhere where, you know, young young men will, you know, they'll go there and it'll be like an occult bookstore or like a or like a bookstore on antiquities or anthropology. But down in the basement, you know, there'll be all kinds of like sex orgies and they'll be blackmailed and mm-hmm. all of this. And I'm like, and you, you know, it's and of course, there's clearly some class That's- stuff on it. Pure Wheatley. That's it's pure, pure Wheatley. Wheatley. <laughs> it's pure Wheatley. And and there's especially in like the Bloomsbury district of of London and all that. And I'm like, this, this all sounds good. And I'm actually going to those places. So, um, but uh, so that's in there. And this case is in there. So clearly, what, what seems to be oh, and also he then has a radio show, if I remember correctly. And I especially he has a TV show. And it's early in television. And it's one of the very first kind of basically true crime TV shows where one of his cases gets reenacted and he like does the intro and conclusions. He's like sort of intros them as a narrator type thing. Again, what becomes unsolved mysteries, you know, Mm. that sort of thing, but they're his mysteries. So the fact that this is around the time that he's all of a sudden refashioning himself for as a career, uh, as a true crime celebrity which which sells better that the last case of Fabian's adventurous career is an old man who got stabbed by his boss over some small money or a witchcraft murder that's still unsolved. I mean, that's that's what's going on. But at some point, Murray reads about this. And in August of that year, in August 1950, she goes to Birmingham for a convention. I forget the exact name of it, but it's like where we show off the best of British science and industry and scholarship and all these sorts of things. Um, you know, kind of like what, like was it South by Southwest here for the film industry or what, or CE three, the big video game and tech industry where they all show up in Las Vegas. It's kind of like that. And she represents the folklore society there. But since she's up there, And again, she's born in, this is in 1950. She's born in, I believe, 1864. So she's up there in age. She decides to go to Lower Quinton. And she decides to go getting some art supplies and saying that she's studying art, that she's an art student. And she's drawing like lands or she's painting landscapes or sketching or whatever she's doing. Um, And she uses this as basically a cover to poke about and ask about the murder and witchcraft. She's clearly trying to find these witches. I don't think she cared so much about solving the murder. I think it was, Oh my God, Gardner found a coven in the new forest. Maybe I can, maybe I can find my witches and she doesn't. But she does talk about this in the news. It's not in her books, but there are interviews with her a few months later where she says, yeah, I did this. Uh, So it's, it's not made up. It's now I say that because this is talked about in McCormick's book, murder by witchcraft. Now uh, I think Hutton's putting a new edition of the triumph of the moon out, right? And there's one from my copy here. It's fairly recent. It's only, 
Uh, maybe one or two years. No, uh, 1999. No, that's quite old. There might be. That's, new- the orig- okay. that's the original. That's the original. Yeah. 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 I, okay. I feel like I heard he's putting a new edition out. The reason I say this is that in the book, he actually specifically says, I went looking at Birmingham newspapers and I couldn't find an article about this. So he thinks hmm. it happened, but he's a little dicey on it. Um, I was able to find articles, but I, there will be no slander of, of Ronald Hutton uh, in, in, no. in, on my watch. No, not, not on uh, this he, show. No, <laughs> he, he just didn't have access to the same resources at that time. Uh, so I'm curious if there is a new edition coming out if he'll modify that. But um, no, I'm a big fan. Uh, but there are newspaper accounts. So he, she did do this. Uh, she didn't. It did not reopen because of her. She. There's no evidence I can find that she was acting in cooperation with the Met, she seems to have been doing it to find her witches. Now, the reason I say that is because in this Murder by Witchcraft by Donald McCormick, uh, not only does he say that they're tied together, he also says that uh, she investigated and pronounced on the Hagley Woods murder, a.k.a. who put Bella in the witch elm. And this is also in the 40s. I don't think it's in 45. I think it's a couple of years earlier where some young boys are out in the woods looking for food to collect to bring home. And they stumble across inside of a witch elm, which is spelled W-Y-C-H, the remains of a, a young woman. She may have been in her 20s, maybe early 30s, but I think 20s, uh, that are recovered. And... They can't identify her, but there's quite a bit of evidence, like, you know, the scraps of clothing and other things. But she's been stuffed into this tree and obviously murdered. Um, and so there's there's a big investigation. Again, you know, the, there's a war on. This is south of Birmingham, but they're both in the basic, roughly, that part of the country instead of northeast of Birmingham, like Lower Quinton. And uh, not terribly long after, but after this gets in the papers, the reason why this is this big mystery is someone starts chalking, I can't remember the exact material they use, but chalking on like the sides of buildings and other things, who put Bella in the witch elm or some variant on that phrase. And that keeps happening. And so that, of course, that is going to start to make this some kind of funky true crime mystery thing. And there are photographs of the crime scene and all of that. And McCormick uh, in his book, investigates a couple of hypotheses. One is that she was somehow involved with a German spy or a Dutch spy, you know, like an, an Axis spy that had parachuted in and, you know, all these things or something like that. The other one, though, is the witchcraft argument. And in the book, he talks about an interview with Murray. Now, this book is in 68. Murray's not with us anymore at this point. But he says that he talked to her and he gives this at-length interview where they talk about, oh, her hand was a bit distant, which actually I'm not even sure it was, from the tree. Maybe it was a hand of glory. Oh. Yeah. The idea that uh, you can use a hand of a thief or someone else to create a magical artifact. Um, And that the particular day it happened and other sorts of things about it suggested it was witchcraft. I can find no other evidence that any of this happened. Not hmm. not the murder, but the that Murray it was investigating, was interested, was involved, said any of these things, talked to McCormick. Hmm. 
Maybe there's evidence out there. I looked pretty decently for it. McCormick mm. has also written about things like the Whitechapel murders, the Jack the Ripper murders. And I know in that sort of community that's interested in that, his name is usually not seen as one uh, in a good way right. in regards to reliability. I, and I don't know the details, but I, I do know that. Uh, but that has why the two are often tied together when uh, you see usually every Halloween, you'll see people like all oh, these mysteries or this, or, and they'll talk about Murray. They'll talk about the witches and there's different varieties and versions. I don't think either of these cases, I could be wrong about this has directly entered into pop culture. I don't think there's any like adaptation when in a popular movie or something. Yeah. Or TV or like, I don't think they've inspired anything directly, certainly not as an adaptation, I don't think there's any imagery. I will say when I watched True Detective and it opens up on that big gnarly tree and the yeah. body, I'm like, oh, is this Bella and the Witch Elm? I don't think it is, but, you know, I don't know. Um, but uh, it's not like, some, you know, for example, I, I was in New Orleans for a long time and they put in uh, Madame LaLaurie into American Horror Story. Uh, she's one hmm. of the main characters. And I'm like, whoa, whoa. And all of a sudden, everybody knew who she was. I don't think that's happened with this. But yeah, it gets brought up every so often. There's an article here. This is just Vice, so take it for what you will, where they say the uh, murder may have been the focus for David Painter's 1967 novel Ritual, loosely based on the Walton murder. Hmm. The Wicker Man, 1973. I've never really? Heard that. I've never heard that. Stated. But I'm, I'm <laughs> I don't not... know where they're getting that from. I'm not a folklore anyway. scholar. I'm not a folk uh, horror scholar, but it's possible. And again, nope. McCormick's book is 68. So, hmm. yeah, you know, but I don't know. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so basically Murray helps kickstart the, the Cthulhu mythos to some degree, which people like Jason Colavito and others have really emphasized is a big influence on things like, UFOs and ancient aliens. And also what I think happened is she helped create the sort of atmosphere and interest in witchcraft that contributes to stuff like Gardner was used by Fabian. And then she was like, Oh my God, look at this. Not realizing she was reading something that probably had been inspired by her. <laughs> It had I, always, been I always wonder if she off. felt um, she'd been upstaged by by Gardner in some way because That's, she's mm -hmm. talking about this thing in theory and then he goes along and says, I, I've gone out and found it. Yeah, I suspect. And he, whether or not he found it, he, he made it, <laughs> you yeah. know, whether or not. Um, I want to say as well, by 1957, so she's mm -hmm. still, just to show that her ideas are still important, that she's still well known in the media and her mm -hmm. ideas about her association with oh, witchcraft. Well, I think still, I know where you're going yeah, with this. You think, go yeah. So let, why don't you tell this story? No, go ahead, go ahead. Because I know you're a fan of this. <laughs> I, I do. I, I like this film, yeah. So we're, I'm talking about Night of the Demon, which I think mm -hmm. in, in the US is called... Um, Curse of the Demon. Curse of the Demon, yeah. yeah. And um, I'm, I'm an old-fashioned... I'm a conservative on this one, which is that I hold the, um, the old-fashioned idea, that, which I think was popular for decades, which is that this is a... Uh, an atmospheric little kind of occult movie, which was slightly tarnished by having very overt kind of cheesy shots of a monster look into it in post-production. Yeah. But uh, I know other people feel differently about this. <laughs> I, I mean, if it wasn't there, it would be a very good movie. It may be a better movie, um, but uh, I don't mind. I, I don't mind it too much. It's a little goofy in bits uh, at the very, like the, the shot with the train. 
You know, yeah. like, oh. <laughs> um, but the thing that's interesting to me is so there's there's the two cuts, and if I remember right, the 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 original Night of the Demon is longer. And well, and if that's the case, whichever one it is, the longer version very has a lot on the the rural people that are part of the cult, right? And that doesn't really go into it, and it's and it's sort of peripheral to like you can easily tell the story without that because of course what's it based on? Mr. James casting the runes, and that's Absolutely. not in there. It's just basically the the wizard. Yeah, uh, and they add that in this section, and they add archaeology. I mean, it opens on Stonehenge. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they add all of that, and it's got to be Murray, and we know it's got to be Murray because what happens next? Oh, well, she she shows up in the um in the promotional doings connected with the yeah. film, right? Yep. Uh, <laughs> so there's a there is a photo. You can find it out there. Uh, the uh, what's the main actor's name? I, I'm, I'm, Dana Dana Andrews. Yes, Dana Andrews, who uh, really comes off as a prick in the film. Yeah, um, he plays. He's well a, known for having been a bit of a prick behind the scenes too. Right? Yeah, but he 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 eventually became open about having clearly struggled with alcohol. Sure. And this was a big part of the problem. And he later talked about that. Like it's it's not like some dirty secret. Um, and so, yeah, he basically is playing himself, <laughs> I suspect, in some ways. Uh, but he shows up and um, he's drunk. But they've brought Murray, who, again, is now, oh, 90-something. And they get them in a photo. And he leans over drunkenly and kisses her on the cheek and apparently says, you old son of a witch. <laughs> <laughs> and there's yeah there's a photo of this so yeah so, so i mean she would have been a well-known a, a well-known enough figure to do that like you know it's not exactly like oh and hollywood's all a buzz because they've got you know i mean yeah they, they clearly thought that that was but that was a good idea so i don't i don't think there's any evidence she consulted on the film uh i don't know i have interesting that she was still well known enough that they got her you know they involved yeah, her in the public exactly Exactly. And she was still associated with witchcraft. Um, interesting. I, it's been a long time since I've read uh, Casting the Runes, but like, you know, uh, what's what's the uh, Cars, Carswell? Julian Carswell, Carswell. is, is uh-huh. the villain. And he's clearly, um, he's an Alistair Crowley type character. He's one of these regular. The, the way he is in the film, definitely. Yeah. And yeah. just in- interesting how, yeah, like uh, some of that archaeological stuff, that kind of, and, and the, the folk uh, mystery stuff mm-hmm. was kind of absent from, because it's more like high magic, isn't it, in the story? What yeah, I think, I think they call it alchemy, actually. Yeah, okay. I, think, I think it's applied alchemy, if I remember correctly. I mean, the thing is, it's a horror story about peer review. Yes, yes. I mean, that, that's literally what it is. <laughs> yeah, because the, the previous guy, you know, had had been had, had just been terrible against him. He was basically, a, I mean, in essence, it, it would be if... Um, uh, Dean Radin somehow, no offense to anyone involved, but if, if Dean Radin somehow cursed Richard Dawkins, <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about here. And the fact that one, it's, it's a, uh, it's a, t- it's a horror story about peer review and that the big confrontation that sets it all off happens in the British library, which at that time was inside the British museum, uh, is kind of amazing. Uh, it's about as scholarly, you know, scholar horror porn as it gets. Um, but, but yeah, and it's a good movie. It's a, it's a good fun movie. 
And that's uh, the scene with the magic lantern, or I don't know if it's a magic lantern, but whatever that is when he's entertaining the kids and and shows off a little. Ooh, good stuff. Mm. Very, very good stuff. I really like the, the memorable um, seance scene, which is used in oh, yeah. Kate Bush and other places. You know, it's, it's such yeah. a... Mm. I don't know. There's something about it that I suppose this this would be kind of like the tail end. of. I mean, obviously, spiritualism is still around, but this would have been the tail end of, you know, that stuff being kind of popular. It, in would, it would have been considered hokey at that point. Mm. Um, it, I think well, I, I think and, and in essence, what's happening is it's all getting a new life because of these interests, because, mm. you know, something like, oh, my God, there's an anthropologist, an archaeologist, someone who knows about the past. And she's saying all this. So you asked earlier about scholarly uh, mm. uh, reception. That's what happens as this starts to become popular. So by the 1960s, in a number of countries, the ideas that have Murray others, but Murray at their roots, that become Wicca, that become other kinds of things, start to really blossom. They start to become very popular and think, for example, of pop culture. You have a bunch of stories, um, novels, short stories, and then movies and television. Um, uh, what is, what's the one, um, is it, is it, Con yeah, Conjure Wife. I think that's Fritz, uh, Liber, Fritz Leiber. Fritz yeah. Fritz Leiber. Yeah. Uh, that's clearly this, and that becomes to some degree, it influences things like, have you seen the movie Bell Book Candle, Bell Book and Candle? No, I've not. Oh, it's um, it's a time. It, it's it's a color <laughs> film from around this time. It's late Jimmy Stewart, and okay, it, and then it's 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 I, I guess it's a romantic comedy. Jimmy Stewart and Kim Novak, and there is a huge age difference between them, and it's so obvious. <laughs> and even apparently Stewart was uncomfortable with it. He's like, oh, I I am really old here, um, but she is a witch. And she's got her familiar, a cat named Piwacket, which is a name taken from witch trial stuff as a, as a familiar. And it's set in, in like the beat generation in the fifties. And she's got all these really cool friends. She runs like an art market. sells a lot of, you know, there's the whole sort of, because the appeal to modern art, um, a lot of sale of quote, African masks, which is a whole other problem. Cause like, no, no, these are far more complicated and in their own cultural thing. Oh, but you've commodified them. Okay. <laughs> uh, but she's cool. She has all these things, but she tried this as in soul. him initially is basically a, to make a point, but then they start to fall in love. But then of course he's been made spoiler. At the end, like things like Conjure Wife, and to some degree, the next thing in all this inspires, Bewitched, yes. she has to kind of give up her powers to become, you know, with this guy. And the ending, she has this really cool, like, artwork and artifacts, and, you know, she's a witch. It's all kind of dark and awesome. She's got a great life going on. And she's at the end running, like, a little gigaw jewelry shop in, in New York. It's all pastels. She's given everything up and then she sound like shells and whatnot. And I'm just like, this is a horror story. <laughs> this is a horror story. This was, she was, a she get, no, the other one was cooler. Um, <sighs> but then yeah, but which, so there's this period, this real interest in this, in this idea. And I'm sure you could look at other things, including the sort of crackdowns on gender, uh, after the war and all these sorts of issues and, and, and panics and all of that. But that starts to go in the 60s and witchcraft gets involved in this. And there's a lot of interest, a lot of popular interest. 
And at that point, you start to get the beginnings of what's now a very robust historical study of witchcraft as a historical phenomenon. Um, looking at the the witch trials and all of that. And that's when you begin to get, I think it was a Trevor Rope, Razor for a Go, if I remember correctly. I could be mistaken on that. Um, they start going, yeah, you know, no. And we start to get the the model we have now that this was about religious warfare and conflict and gender and all these things. And the people that were being accused of witchcraft were not practicing witchcraft. Now, there may have been the idea of healers and midwives and other stuff. And that's part of it, but not Murray, not Murray's concept. That's when you start to get the pushback is in the later sixties and into the seventies, uh, against her. It's not for most of her life, except that book where she's talking about the Royals. Everyone's like, okay, this is a bit ridiculous and more like a conspiracy theory. Um, that's when you get, uh, all that pushback. And there was something I was going to mention related to all this blanking on. Oh, uh, speaking of Hutton, have you read Hutton's book? I think it's called The Witch. Uh, no, is that the recent one? Most recent one. Re- pretty recent, yeah. And the reason I mention that is he very openly talks about the two different ways of, att- of approaching witchcraft. How there's a fairly deep anthropological approach, and then there's that, that historical approach. And he tries to meld them. Like, that's his explicit sort of mission is that they both could learn from each other. And it's kind of interesting. I'm not sure I agree with all of 100%, but it's really interesting stuff. And it's definitely, your listeners may want to check that. I mean, obviously mm. check out Triumph of the Moon. Mm. Uh, but that this one is a pretty good, and it's it's accessible. It's an accessible one. So, so Have you yeah. ever, ever met him, Jim? No. Uh, I've talked to him once on a Zoom call. He did a lecture and Q&A. Um, and so I briefly talked to him in that context, but I've never met him in person. No, hmm. uh, so I've, I've had a few people on who, who met him, but I won't say, I won't, uh, worry, wonder about anyone's personal doings. It's not, yeah, not he's, he's very, um, he is very much, there's a reason I think he shows up in documentaries in addition to being a very good scholar. Uh, he's kind of a character. Yes. So I, I get the feeling there. No, I, I've um, there's that really good. Um, have you seen there's there was a TV doc? I think it's called. Um, I think it's Brit- called Britain's Witchcraft mm-hmm. or something. The channel. Britain, yeah. Yeah. I think it's uh, Britain's. Uh, it's not not Wicker Man, but Britain something man. Yeah. yeah. It's about, he travels about the around looking for Gerald Gardner's artifacts. Yeah. And there's that section, there's that section with, um, Treadwells and the witches and all of that. Uh, those folks I've met, but I've not met, I've not met, um, Hutton. No. Interesting. So is there anything else we want to say about the, um, 1945 Walton murders and their shadow? I don't, I don't think so. Uh, again, I would, I would check out the, the case of foiled Fabian, Simon Reed. If you're interested specifically in the crime, there is discussion of uh, Murray and how that got involved, but that's not Reed's main focus. Um, he's more interested in like, well, what actually happened here? Uh, the stuff about Fabian then getting um, uh, Murray on the case, that stuff I've kind of puzzled out, and I do talk about that, and as well as the ties to things like Lovecraft with Murray in in spooky archaeology, myth and the science of the past. Um, and let's see, no, that's about the, about the size of it. But 
I will ask you this. Did you see the, uh, the news story a few, a few years ago, uh, about Creswell Craggs? No, tell me the story. Okay. So, um, one of the things I love to talk about in some of my classes is, and I don't know if you've done an episode on apotropaic magic, like all the, the archeology span of witchcraft, you know? So, you know, Murray here, we're like, okay, her idea and, and a lot of people who are, you know, in the neo-pagan community and whatnot are like, yeah, no, we, we understand that Murray, there is pushback to Hutton's conclusion that no, this is a modern historical tradition. It's a great one, but it's a modern historical tradition. Um, but whenever I describe this stuff in class, I always used to like, you know, there is an archeology span of witchcraft. There is an archeology span of magic, you know, the stuff like witch bottles. Yes. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, shoes and walls and all those sorts oh, of yeah, things. Yeah. 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 I know somebody yeah. who found one in, in the UK. <laughs> oh, really? Cool. Yeah, yeah, Very it cool. Happens. No, it absolutely does. I think a witch bottle was found recently actually. Um, and then the witch marks, the apotropaic marks, you know, these various, um, usually based on prayers, marks and symbols that are carved into things. You know, there was a house that, uh, James the first stayed in that uh when they were when they when national trust was kind of you know doing some conservation work on it they flipped over all the floorboards this was a seven eight years ago i think they flipped over all the floorboards and they were covered in apotropaic marks which given that it's james the first that doesn't make a lot of surprise that makes a lot of sense actually uh he wrote you know on demonology and was deeply interested in such topics for a time but Creswell Crags has been known in Eastern England as a important archeological site, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for various periods, you know, it's a multi-component site. It's a series of caves. Well, in 2019, it was announced that some cavers, you know, who were going around, they started noticing, they were showing the, the guides and, and the caretakers. There's like, you know, you've got witch marks here. <sighs> and they're like, what? And you can actually go, in fact, um, let me see if I can find it and I'll, uh, or just let me see if I can find, type in um, the word sketch fab and Creswell, C-R-E-S-W-E-L-L, um, Creswell 3D models should come up. Okay. Sketch fab is basically a, um, well, that's not the one we're looking for. I'll see if I can find it and send it oh, to you. Oh, this is the program that does three dimensional models of, um, yeah. Yeah. yeah no, well, yeah. so, so sketch fab is, is basically like YouTube. It's, it's, it's the equivalent of a YouTube for 3d models. So like you can easily embed them. You don't make them there, but once you've made one, you put them in there and you can easily view them. And I use it all the time for teaching. And we put a bunch of ours up uh, here, but I was going to show you because they they've been scanned. Um, hmm. But there's also photos. But in 2019, they announced, oh yeah, there are witch marks in Creswell Crags, and by there are witch marks, usually in a building. I've I've been in a medieval tithe barn that I think there are some. There's some daisy wheels in there. There are other ones. You know, there's usually a few in a building if it's really old that protect against witchcraft. They come from this time period, you know, 16th, 17th century, that sort of thing. Uh there are thousands in Queswell Crags. Hmm. Thousands. I'm just more looking than, at the 3D model. <laughs> yeah, more than anywhere else. Oh, you found it. You found this it. This is a cool program, yeah. yeah. This is amazing. More, more than anywhere else. And they kind of talked about, like, well, what would, what's the deal here? It's like, no, we think these are exactly what these are. And it was either to protect this place or to keep something in this place. 
And so there were like the news stories like, oh, portal to hell found in England, you know, that sort of thing. Of course. And as I always, when I lecture about this, I tell my students, the last line I give is, yep, yeah, nope, those were found in 2019 and then nothing bad ever happened <laughs> after that. No, no, nothing happened to the world after that. It was all okay. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's kind of cool stuff. No, if you can find someone, I just recently got a, 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 a thorough record of those. It was published, uh, recently. So I'll just say, um, so the, so the book is spooky archeology. span The mm -hmm. podcast is in research of, in research of listeners will be familiar with that, but we'll, we'll mention it again. Anything else online or, and uh, what would you like people to know about your doings online? No, uh, in, in terms of online, I mean, that's, that's basically it. I do tweet, um, I'm Atzib, A-H-T-Z-I-B which is um, one way you can spell. It's not the, the really the way now. The other person who has that is an expert on the topic, Dave Stewart. But Atzib uh, is my Twitter. You can find me there. Um, I'm not, I, I'm active, but I'm not like constantly pumping out content. Uh, I'm on there and I check it daily or more than a bunch, more than I should daily, but I'm not sitting there pumping stuff out there. But yeah, the, the podcast. Um, and I'll just say that... I have, I, you know, pandemic was pretty hard on everyone and for teaching, it did not help. So I've been kind of, you know, not as productive as I'd like to be the last couple of years, but I've gotten back into, into work, uh, on such things and I can't get deeper, but I've been getting some progress, some good progress on some stuff involving what I like to call the paranormal unified field theory or the puffed. And I don't want to talk about what it is yet, but there's some really cool things I think that will be coming out at some point about that and about sort of the nature of modern paranormal belief and its history, where it came from. Uh, but I don't want to say anymore. Excellent. Looking forward to that. Jeb, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, folks. Uh, so... Hopefully you've stuck around for some bonus material, connections, uh, shoutouts, that kind of thing. So, as always, you can uh, say thanks over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide Atlantic. Special thanks this time around to Pete Williams for doing so. Sent me on some Java and said that he enjoyed specifically the H.R. Haggard episode. So, shout out also to Lauren the Gothic Bookworm who was on that episode and... Uh, of late has been making me jealous because she got to go to that Dublin Gothic convention with lots of other cool people. I'd love to have been there and they traveled around the city going to antique bookshops and picking up copies of Victorian Gothic novels and making me very jealous and going to cool places. So maybe I'll get a chance to do some of those things next time I'm up there, but I, I couldn't the week of the conference. So yet yeah, not jealous at all. Special thanks to... Ken Fader for sending me on something cool. Uh, it's a booklet called Legendary Creatures, and this appears to be from the Canadian Postal Service. They seem to have done a collection of Canadian cryptid-themed stamps, and they've written this book or leaflet, um, and it's kind of written as if it's for kids, and there's sections on you know famous Canadian monsters. But the, the illustrations are really nice, really fun. It's very stylized. And uh, yeah, so thanks to... Ken, who of course is the author of Amer uh, Ancient America, 50 Archaeological Sites, 
to see for yourself and a very fine scholar also. Um, I want to talk briefly about The Wicker Man and the book The Ritual, written by David Pinner. Now, I'm a little bit sorry I didn't know this. It sounds like the kind of thing I should have known. It does seem to be more or less true that the film, the more famous film, is quasi-based upon this novel. But what seems to have happened is a consortium of heads, including Christopher Lee and Anthony Schaefer, uh, or Schaffer, I, I should say. Anthony Schaffer was the screenwriter for the film, and Christopher Lee was Christopher Lee, and they bought the rights to this to film it. And then at some point during the pre-production decided that it would be too, too difficult to film and Anthony Schaffer decided to come up with his own uh, treatment for a film but based on some of the same themes, the idea of a, a festival, a sort of a pagan holdover festival somewhere in England or Britain um, that had kind of fatal consequences and there would be murder involved. So, you know, technically The Wicker Man is a an original storyline, but... Um, if you look into the ritual novel, there are a lot of connections. So, there you go. And lastly, I want to say that there is a musical version, or rather a sort of a, a soundtrack to this story we've been talking about, about the 1945 Witchcraft Murders, and it comes from the organization known as Library of the Occult, and the record is called Witchcraft Murders. And it's kind of atmospheric, pseudo-dungeon synth type stuff. Some of the tracks are called things like In the Shadow of Meon Hill, 14th February 1945, uh, Who Put Bella Down the Witch Elm, Hand of Glory, and my favourite, Fabian Investigates. So check that one out. Might give you a little bit of um, musical background to the stuff that we've been talking about in this episode. And that's it for now, folks. Uh, say hi over on Twitter, where I'm at Strange Ireland, or Instagram, where I am uh, Irish underscore cryptid underscore dude. And until next time, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.